Repodcasting is part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. Have you ever watched a movie and wondered why they cast that woman or that guy? Well, here's our chance to give it a try. We're repodcasting. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Repodcasting. I'm Lucia. And I'm Janet. Hi, Janet. How are you doing? Good, good. Good. It's been a while since we last recorded. We had banked a couple episodes and things are starting to open up a little bit now, no? Well, I guess where you, you live in Calgary, right? <laughs> so yeah. I guess things have started opening before us here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. But you are back at work and I've had I to go back at work. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been back in the office as well. So, yeah, maybe that's a good sign, I'm hoping. We'll see. <laughs> I know. Or <laughs> maybe it sends us down a spiral. So I guess, you know, now there's less of like, what are you doing with your free time? Because now we're we're going back to the usual grind of not having much free time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But thankfully, there's still time for breakfast at Tiffany's, at least for me. So um, yeah, that's the movie that we're recasting today. Uh, I chose it. It is a movie from 1961 starring Audrey Hepburn and George Pappard. And it's a movie that I really, really love. Like it's one of my absolute all-time favorite movies. But I do recognize that there is a glaring problem with it in one of the characters. And in fact... Every once in a while, I'll Google like poorly cast movies just to get extra ideas for our podcast. And this one is usually at the top of every list because of the character of Mr. Yunioshi, who was played by Mickey Rooney. So um, Janet, you have seen this movie before as well, right? Yes, I had watched it once before, and then I watched it again for the recasting purposes. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's so much to say, and I don't even know where to begin, because it's just like a glaring problem with this, to me, otherwise really lovely movie. Right, right. It is from 1961, but at least from what I've read and seen, um, it was that that character was a broad racist character, even for that time. A lot of the reviews at the time put down Mickey Rooney's performance. So it's not one of those things where you can be like, oh, it's old. And so, you know, they didn't know better. or That's just how things were then. Like this was bad even for its time. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, um, I found a, a review by uh, a gentleman named James Powers, and he wrote for The Hollywood Reporter. This was back in 1961, and in his review, he actually wrote the role, this is, uh, I'm speaking of Mr. Yunioshi, uh, the role is a caricature, and it will be offensive to many. Mm -hmm. So... I think you're definitely right. I mean, even in 1961, it was recognized that this was glaringly racist, definitely. Yeah. Now, yesterday, you and I texted a little bit because Breakfast at Tiffany's is based on a novella by Truman Capote. And so we were trying to figure out if Yunioshi 
is in the novella and what his character is like in that. So um, yeah, I took a look at it and he is there. He's not in it nearly as much as he is in the movie, but he is Holly's upstairs neighbor. And there is one time where she rings the bell late at night for him to let her in and he gets mad. And then in the novella, she never does it again. He is a photographer and he is of Japanese heritage, but he's actually from California, moved to New York. So, I mean, I certainly get the impression that he is a Japanese American character, perhaps with an accent, perhaps without. It's hard to tell because he really doesn't have a lot of dialogue. But from reading it, I don't see how you get to the Mickey Rooney character that we see on screen. Like it's, it's not like you can say, well, they took that from the novella. Not at all. Yeah. Well, it seems uh, the screenwriter for this film was a gentleman named George Axelrod. And it seems as though, like, they basically took the character and, you know, they rewrote it for laughs. But in the meantime, like, it was this huge racial slur that they were, that they were writing for laughs. And it's, I mean, viewed from today's lens, obviously it's it's grossly offensive, but I think it was offensive back then as well. So. Mm-hmm. And um, the director, Blake Edwards, as well as Mickey Rooney, both went on record later on saying that they regretted that portrayal and that they, they didn't think it was right. But they did it at the time. Right. <laughs> In fact, Blake Edwards said, looking back, I wish I had never done it and would give anything to recast it. So, Blake Edwards, this is for you. We're going to recast it. Were you able to find stats on the box office for this movie? I was. So, uh, the budget, and this was, uh, I found these stats on Wikipedia. So, the budget was $2.5 million, and the box office was $14 million. Wow. It was a hit. Yeah, it did quite well for 1961. I was I was very impressed with that number. Nice. I really, really like this movie. I truly do. The first time I saw it, I was in high school. And I had never, I'm pretty sure I had never seen Audrey Hepburn in anything at that point. And I was just so utterly charmed by her. Like I completely fell in love. Since then, I've tried to you know, get get a hold of all of the movies that she's ever been in. I'm just a huge, huge fan. And it's all from this performance as Holly Golightly. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So I wrote a little synopsis for the movie. Glamour girl Holly Golightly navigates life in New York City as a call girl and befriends her neighbor, writer Paul Varjak. And I'll spoil it. And then they fall in love at the end. <laughs> It's on Netflix, it's on Canopy, go give it a watch if you haven't. (laughs) Um, Okay, so apart from recasting Yunioshi, which was the whole purpose of doing this episode, I asked Janet if she wouldn't mind um, recasting the two lead characters, Holly and Paul, but not like in 1961, just with a contemporary cast. Now, I do, disclaimer, that is not to say that I think this movie should be remade or that I want it to be remade. I don't. 
I like it. I mean, I would love the one thing I would love is if somebody would cut together this movie without Mickey Rooney. <laughs> if there's a way to do that and still have it flow nicely, that would be incredible. Um, other than that, I don't want this movie touched. But just as like an exercise for the podcast, I thought it would be interesting to see what contemporaries we would put in those roles. Sure. Okay. And before we do the recasting, we'll do a quick break. As you know, Repodcasting is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. There are a bunch of other podcasts on the network that are fantastic and you should definitely be listening to. An example would be Anti-Culture with Josiah Sinanen. Josiah focuses on stories of unique individuals in the cultural matrix. So definitely check out Anti-Culture along with so many other great podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. And let's get right into the recast, shall we, Janet? Sure. I can go first since I picked the movie. So Mickey Rooney, there's no question. Wrong choice for this role, definitely. I did decide to keep the neighbor as a Japanese-American man, uh, as it was in the novella. And I was looking around for actors who were already in Hollywood at that time. And um, I found James Shigeta, who was in Flower Drum Song, a musical um, in the same year. And a lot of people will know him as Tagaki from Die Hard. So <laughs> he was in the Hollywood business for quite a long time. And I thought that it would be great to still see a Japanese character in this movie. We didn't need to like necessarily make them all white people, but to actually have a Japanese actor portray him. Yeah, that was the sort of the challenge in a sense too, was that there didn't seem to be a lot of Asian actors that were really working in Hollywood at that time. Yeah, it's Did you true. Find? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it was a challenge. There were a lot of Japanese actors, I'm sure, but in Hollywood, yeah, that was a tougher find. Did you want to go ahead with your Yunioshi, and then we can get into the contemporary sure. cast? Yeah, for sure. So I really didn't, I don't know, I mean, I didn't read the novella, which is why I asked you if you had read it, because I actually didn't even realize that there was a book I had no idea that that was the source material, that it was written by Truman Capote. Like, that was news to me, right? Mm -hmm. So I only discovered that when I started doing research for this. So I was really curious as to whether this character even existed in the book or if they took, if the screenwriter, this George Axelrod, if he took artistic license, mm -hmm. <laughs> which he did. Well, I mean, definitely, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> but... I find it so interesting that that was sort of the direction that they decided to go in with the script. Mm -hmm. Like, it would have been so easy to just have dropped this character. Yeah. Considering that he was basically non-existent <laughs> in the novella. Yeah, yeah. He really doesn't, like... In terms of him appearing in the novella, he's in it very little, and then he is spoken about as well a little bit. Right. But that's it. So it really feels like, it feels like just 
a huge, huge mistake that the screenwriter made. I mean, who am I, right? I'm a screenwriter. <laughs> <laughs> who am I to sit here and critique this guy? But still, I just find it. I find it interesting that that was sort of the direction. Like they could have gone in any direction, mm-hmm. any direction. I mean, they could have completely gotten rid of this character. Uh, they could have done so many things. I mean, when you're adapting something from a book, we've seen it time and time and time again, right? Yeah. Like, how many times is something adapted from a book and it's so loosely adapted and they change characters and they change locations and they make so many changes. So the fact that they decided to do this feels, I don't know, it's just like an egregious sort of racial slur. It really is. Like they did not have to go in this direction. Absolutely. It was a decision to do that. Yeah, definitely. And I found it really interesting that Truman Capote when he watched the movie for the first time, he said it was the most miscast <laughs> film I've ever seen. It made me want to throw up. <laughs> like, there's no ambiguity there. <laughs> like, we know exactly how he felt about this. And so the casting, obviously, he wrote this book and then they, they did all this to it. And, you know, they trashed it book. I guess that's how he felt, essentially. Yeah, the two main characters are quite different from his two main characters as well. Yeah, there is a lot that's very, very different. And I can imagine that because I think this is also a novella that's quite personal to him because the narrator who is like the Paul Varjak essentially does seem to be him. Uh, like writing a version of himself and the Holly Golightly character is an amalgam of friends of his. Um, Some have speculated that it's loosely based on his mother. So like, I think it's something that was super personal to him. So I can imagine the type of changes that they made being really offensive to him, regardless of them being offensive overall. I can see why he would not like it. about the casting of Mr. Yunioshi was that there seemed to be sort of, it was a divisive sort of thing because the producer, or at least one of the producers, Richard Shepard, he wanted to recast the role initially. Mm. He thought Yunioshi should have been performed by a Japanese actor. Wow. He wasn't saying that retrospectively. That was his opinion when they were, I guess, casting for the movie. It was Blake Edwards, apparently, who really pushed for Mickey Rooney. Mm -hmm. And apparently, like, everyone, later on, everyone turned on Blake Edwards. So it really seems like it was the director's sort of pick on this. Yeah, he was friends with Mickey Rooney, from what I gather. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, So anyway, I did go in a completely different direction. um, Because Mr. Yunioshi does not play prominently in the source material, Mm -hmm. I decided to, like, just completely get rid of him and not even use that character Okay. because I was like, why? Like, you know, this is so problematic. Yeah. Uh, and also personally, when I was doing my research, I didn't find 
a lot of Japanese American actors, and I thought, you know, we're just gonna get—I'm just gonna get into the same situation where I'm struggling to find someone, and I just thought the whole thing was really problematic, so I wanted to stay away from it. So I rewrote the part. I made it a female neighbor. Someone who's really nosy and、mm-hmm. also kind of crusty, <laughs> because you know, Mr. Yunioshi was like he was kind of a crusty kind of guy. For sure. Like, I don't care. Forget that he was Japanese American. That's not why he was crusty. Like I felt like that's what they were saying. Oh, he's so mean, or he's so <laughs> curmudgeonly because he's a Japanese American man. Like, what does that have to do with anything, right? It's so ridiculous. Like,、yeah. The the subtle, like just. Like the stereotype was just awful, so I turned it into a female because that was my other problem. I don't know. I guess comedy back then, right? They didn't really. It was always men who got like the comedic roles, right? Okay. They were、yeah. still in that spot where they weren't recognizing women as being funny.、Mm-hmm. Like women weren't being given that opportunity yet. So I also that's kind of why I wanted a female in the role as well. You know, I thought, well, it can still be a nosy sort of curmudgeonly neighbor. So I also renamed the character. <laughs> Like,、okay. Sorry, George Axelrod. I just like <laughs> took over your job here. Instead of recasting, I also made myself a screenwriter.、Uh, so I called the character Mrs. Funkerbonker. Oh my god! Because that would be such a great name to say, like on、oh、screen. Like everyone trying to say Mrs. Funkerbonker. Like I don't know. I just. I'm sure no one else thinks it's funny. I really don't care. I have to、uh, say, I'm loving it. She wasn't funny either. So <laughs> whatever.、Uh, and I cast Carol Burnett. Oh, that's great. Carol Burnett's great. Yeah. And she was just sort of like she was just coming into prominence around that time、okay. that the movie came out. She had been on. Broadway,、mm. um, and she'd had like that had been sort of her breakout success in 1959. She did、uh, a play called Once Upon a Mattress,、mm-hmm. and she even got a Tony nom for it. So that was like that was her breakout sort of role. She was starting to become more of a known actor, and I mean. If she'd been in this movie, obviously, like it would have catapulted her career, right? Yeah. Also, would have been nice for. I mean, there were other women in this movie, but I don't know. I just. I, I think she would have been great. She's. I think she's wonderful. Yeah. I think it would have been fun. There, you're right. There isn't a ton of female characters, and. I was trying to think about it. I, this movie might not pass the Bechdel test either. Because generally the women are talking about men, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's cool. I like that. You know what's really interesting is to me the Yunioshi character in the movie is actually an amalgam of a couple of the neighbors in the building, one of whom is a nosy downstairs lady neighbor. I forget her name right now. She has an odd name as well. Yeah. So it feels like. Even without having read it, you you went in that direction that Truman Capote had gone into.、Mm-hmm. I love Carol Burnett, so I'm always up for seeing her in anything. I, I like that. Nice. 
Cool. Um, okay. So let's move on to Holly Golightly and Paul Varjak circa 2020. Actually, this is probably like the characters are supposed to be relatively young. Um, although Audrey Hepburn was 31 at the time when this came out. Uh, so I'm pretty sure the people that I cast are more like mid to late 30s, but that's all right. We'll go with them anyway. Because I like this movie so much, I wanted to think of people who are kind of timeless. Because even if what we're considering here right now is a, a 2020 remake... I still want it to have kind of the the feeling of the 1960s movie. So in terms of somebody who I think could have the same kind of joie de vivre that Audrey Hepburn gives us in Holly, I thought of Emily Blunt. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like her a lot. And I think that she can play really fun and light and charming. And I could very much see her having a real fun time with a role like this. Yeah, I mean, she's such a versatile actress, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she is. She can do pretty much anything. And so somebody to play off of her nicely, but also have that, again, that timeless kind of charm, somebody who's dapper and sexy and can kind of do it all as well. Someone who's also versatile. I cast Ryan Gosling as Paul Varjak. Oh, really? I did. Okay. Yeah. Um, it is interesting because so when I was rewatching it, because like I said, I've seen it many, many times. But when I was rewatching it to recast it, I was watching the DVD. And so I watched a couple of special features. And um, I did read like, you know, some articles here and there. And I was surprised at learning about George Papard, how he was on set, because I do think that overall, he comes across well in the movie. I buy the chemistry between them. But learning that, you know, it sounds like he was kind of a jerk. <laughs> and he kind of made things difficult for everybody on set. Uh, that was a bummer. So when I was recasting it, I wanted to pick someone who, to me, is a good embodiment of the character that I saw on screen. And like, just trying to forget everything I read about him as an actor. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So for my Holly, um, it's interesting, because I was reading that Truman Capote wanted Marilyn Monroe for this role initially. Mm hmm. He was not a fan of Audrey Hepburn's. Yeah. What did you think of that? Well, I think he wasn't a fan. I don't know if he wasn't a fan of Audrey Hepburn. I think that he thought she was all wrong for Holly. Like, he just didn't see her. Because, so the character is apparently slightly based on Marilyn Monroe as well. Like, she is one of the people who Holly is an amalgam of. So I can totally see why he would want her in that role. It would be a really different movie. Um, and I'd kind of like to see it too. I, I'm a big fan of Marilyn Monroe, yeah. but I just, I love Audrey Hepburn in this so much. So I, right. I like what she did with it, even if it's not what the original writer wanted. Mm -hmm. He also described Holly as an American geisha. <laughs> okay. With that. Like, yeah. this movie seems so riddled with racism. 
I'm not even going to tell you some of the words Holly uses in the book because they're appalling. And I will, they're words I will not say. (laughs) Okay. Um, So for my Holly, you know, the way I see the character, um, Holly is very enigmatic. Like she's kind of, she's kind of mysterious Mm -hmm. in the movie, right? Yeah. You get that sense. She's mercurial. I mean, she's all over the place. (laughs) Yeah. Right? At times, she's eccentric. Uh, you know, she's very flirtatious. She's just oozing all that charm. She's she's a magnet mm-hmm. to to men. So I actually I had like two people that I thought of would be really really good. And the first person that I went with, I've seen this actress in a few different things, and I really think based on what I have seen her do in her work. I think that she could definitely capture that essence of Holly, like all of those, all of those characteristics, Hmm. like that flirtatiousness, that eccentricity. She could definitely do it. And my first choice was Tessa Thompson. Okay. Do you know who she is? I know the name and I feel like I'm picturing the right person. Was she in the Men in Black reboot? Yes, she was. Okay. And she was also in Sorry to Bother You. And I think that was like when I was thinking about her performance in Sorry to Bother You, that's when I was like, I think she could really channel that energy Mm. that Holly has. Okay. And she's, I mean, a lot of people might know her from the Marvel Universe. Right. She was in Thor, Ragnarok. She's in the Avengers Endgame. But she's also on Westworld. Oh. For anyone who's a fan of that show or who doesn't, who isn't a fan and wants to check it out. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's funny because I have been, well, when I was quarantining or whatever, I got into this show called Veronica Mars, which is an older show. Mm-hmm. And Tessa Thompson was actually on the second season of it. Hmm. She was so good. I had no idea that she had been on that. And she just, she has that energy. She is Holly as far as I'm concerned, like just based on what I have seen her do and her work. The other actor that I was thinking of is Rose McIver. Okay, yes. Do you know who she is? So for anyone who doesn't recognize that name, in terms of TV work, she did a show called I Zombie. And then she's also in the Christmas Prince movies, which I'm sure a lot of people will know her from from that more so than from iZombie. But I could definitely see Rose McIver playing Holly Golightly as well. Because just based on the work, especially the the TV work that I've seen her, like she was excellent on iZombie and she would play like all these different characters. And she just has this ability to like, she's, She's kind of, you know what, she almost reminds me of James McAvoy in a sense that she can play so many different characters so believably, and you're like, wow, she can do comedy, she can 
do drama and she has like that flirtatiousness about her and she maybe has like a little bit more I don't know what the word is like Holly comes across like they sanitized Holly for the movie right big time yeah and so I feel like Rose McIver maybe could play that a little bit better than Tessa Thompson I don't know but I think she would Rose McIver would would be good too that's interesting. I haven't seen enough of her stuff. I saw her in The Lovely Bones, thanks to repodcasting. <laughs> and then she that's had a small it. role, though, right? Yeah, she had a she very small it. role. Yeah. And yeah. then I did see The Christmas Prince. And so clearly based on that, I don't see Holly Golightly. But, right. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely need to see more. I do like Tessa Thompson, though. I think that she would be a very cool Holly. For sure. I mean, Paul is a kept man, mm-hmm. right? In the movie, yeah. he's having like he's having sex with some older lady who pays him for it, all and the who's time. married. And you know, while he supposedly like is a writer, <laughs> I don't know. I don't see him doing much work in that movie. Yeah. But okay, you're a writer, Paul. Sure. <laughs> but Paul is, you know, he's charming. He's a social climber. I yeah. Think if I was to describe Paul, I would say Paul is like a charming social climber. Mm-hmm. But what I found really interesting was one of the producers of Breakfast at Tiffany's, when I guess they were trying to cast the role of Paul, it was Martin Juro, he uh, said something really interesting. Um, that I kind of went with in terms of my cast. And he said, the male lead is just a pair of shoulders for Holly to lean on. Okay. So it's not to say that you're not getting, like, basically the role is kind of like, I don't want to say it's a nothing burger, because obviously, like, there's a, a, there's a, a romance, there's a relationship there, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's true. He's just kind of there. Like, I didn't necessarily need somebody who's, you know, a stellar actor, mm-hmm. so to say, right? Yeah. Now I feel bad about these. I feel like I'm missing these two <laughs> actors, but I'm not. I'm not. Uh, so my first pick was Sam Claflin. Him I don't know. Yeah, so Sam Claflin, a lot of people will know him from The Hunger Games. He was Finnick. Um, he was in Me Before You. Oh, right. He was in Love Wedding Repeat. He's done a lot of romantic comedies. That was one of the reasons I decided to put him in this role, because he's done a lot. If anyone watches Peaky Blinders, he was just most recently in season five. But he's good at playing that romantic lead that is there. He's there as a romantic (laughs) lead, right? It's not to say Sam Claflin's a bad actor. I don't think he is. But I could totally see him playing this role of Paul. Totally. Like, I was watching it and he was the first person who came to my mind. I was like, oh, Sam Claflin would be like all over this. (laughs) And then, you know what? I would love to see Sam Claflin and Tessa Thompson acting 
off one another. I would love that. I would love to see them as scene partners. I think that would be so interesting. But I mean, I could see him with with Rose McIver as well. Mm. I could see him with both of those two actresses, and I would love to see how like that chemistry would work. And then also, mm. my second choice was Donald Glover. Oh. Uh, yeah, Donald Glover. Childish Gambino, <laughs> uh, and then a lot of people might know him from Community. He was on a show called Atlanta, and then for all the Star Wars fans, he was in the Solo movie. He played Lando Calrissian. But yeah, Donald Glover, I don't know. He's got that, I could see him playing Paul, like that flirtatious, charming guy who's wooing an older lady. Like, same with Sam Claflin. Like, I can just see them in those roles and I mean obviously they would have their own interpretation of it but I would really love to see that Donald Glover with that super charming smile of his Mm -hmm. right and I mean same thing I could totally see him with Tessa Thompson I would love to see him with Tessa Thompson Mm -hmm. and even Rose McIver I could see those two acting opposite one another I would love to see that I think it would be really interesting I am blown away at what a good pick that is. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I find Donald Glover incredibly charming. I think he's fantastic. He can do comedy. He can do drama. He can do adventure. He Like, he's really good in everything I see him in. But I have never seen him as, like, a romantic lead. And what I haven't seen Atlanta, so I don't know what his character is like there. But I want to see him as the lead in a romantic comedy. I know, so do I. There's, I think a lot of actors don't want to do them like they're seen as, you know, and that's one of the things about Sam Claflin that I often read about him, like that criticism, oh, he does a lot of romantic comedy. Mm. Well, what's wrong with that, right? I think every actor i think every male actor should have a romantic comedy on their resume for sure at least one you know what i mean and i mean obviously there are some actors that like they don't want to do them because they're not seen as serious or Mm -hmm. they don't get to like really exercise their craft in a romantic comedy but i mean they're popular romantic comedies always make money yeah always even the bad ones <laughs> even romantic comedies that are awful they always make money because there's always an audience for them so. yeah and you know what's funny i would say an argument in favor of actors doing romantic comedies is look at matthew mcconaughey he had like a string of romantic comedies almost to the point where he was pigeonholed But he's gone on to win awards, have all kinds of critically acclaimed roles. Just because you're in a romantic comedy or or several even, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to get other media roles. It doesn't mean you can't act. It doesn't mean you're not talented if you're in a romantic comedy. I mean, people had become, like, I think Matthew McConaughey at one point had really become very much a joke in Hollywood. Like, people were super dismissive of him and his career because he had made a career out of doing romantic comedies. Mm -hmm. But there's skill in in anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, so like I said, I mean, I wasn't trying to be dismissive of either actor, especially not Sam Claflin, because he's on, I have seen PQ 
like I watch Peaky Blinders. I am a devoted Peaky Blinders fan. And he is, he plays a villain in season five. And listen, Sam Claflin can act, okay? He acts opposite Killian Murphy, and he holds his own. And any actor that is able to do that, nobody should be questioning their acting abilities. So, I mean, I think Sam Claflin has just done a lot of romantic comedies, but he's right. quite good at them, and he is very charming, and there's a reason why he gets offered them, because he is so charming, and he, he's smooth, but he's also, he's got, like, a little bit more of that goofiness. I think he's maybe, he's uh, he's good at comedy as well. I think maybe he hasn't necessarily been given that opportunity, but he was good. Like, I liked him in Love Wedding Repeat. Like, he certainly... The movie was, I thought it was horrible, <laughs> but he was like one of the better, it was just his hair that was really distracting, but I thought he was good in it. So okay. anyway, those are my picks. Okay. I think that's really interesting because I am, or at least recently, I have been one of those people who's very much like, I don't like romantic comedies. I don't like romantic comedies. But then when I start looking at what is included in that category, I think a lot of people have come to expect Hallmark movies or Lifetime movies as the definition of a romantic comedy, whereas there's tons of movies that are very, very excellent, but they are lighter and they are romantic. And so they end up under the romantic comedy category. And so, yeah, I feel like people tend to be very, very dismissive of it, but there are good ones. And so there are ones where you have to be a good actor if it's going to turn out to be a good movie. So yeah, I don't know. I think for the most part, when we do this, both you and I tend to not pick crappy actors anyway, because we're trying to improve a movie. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, yeah, I have to say I really, really love the pick of Donald Glover. Now that you've said that and put that in my head, I desperately want to see him as a romantic comedy lead. <laughs> Good. So I don't have a lot of like fun facts. We've already kind of covered everything. Uh, but I did just want to mention something that I thought was interesting. For this movie, Audrey Hepburn was paid $750,000, which made her the highest paid actress per film at the time. Wow. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool. money, Audrey Hepburn. Damn straight. <laughs> and so the ratings for the movie... On IMDb, this has a 76% from six critic reviews. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 88% from 51 reviewers. So it's pretty damn high on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Should we mention uh, about it's the Academy Awards? It won? Should we talk about that or not? Oh, sure. I didn't look that up. Oh. Um, so it actually won two Oscars. Nice. It won for best original song for <laughs> Moon River, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and it also won Best Original Score, oh. but there were also uh, nominations for Best Actress, oh, good. Best Adapted Screenplay, ha ha ha, <laughs> which I think is hilarious, <laughs> um, and Best Art Direction. Oh, okay. I'm glad that Audrey Hepburn was nominated for this role. Yeah, it certainly racked up the accolades, right? Mm -hmm. And I just have one little fun fact that 
I would like to mention before we, we move on to our next segment. Because it's a movie that, like, it's so iconic, her looks, yeah. especially in terms of, like, the little black dress and the pearls. I mean, you know, how many times have we seen prints of that and, um, and people trying to recreate it and that sort of thing? And this was sort of a fun fact for me because I always assumed that the sun, like, this is completely an aesthetic thing that, that I'm going to talk about here. Okay. But um, I always thought she was wearing Ray-Bans in the movie. She was not. She okay. was wearing these sunglasses were designed by someone named Oliver Goldsmith oh. in London. Well. Yeah. So it's like, why have people been saying she was wearing Ray-Bans all this time? I guess the... She wasn't. Yeah, no. But I guess the the glasses that she's wearing in that opening scene, when she's having breakfast at Tiffany's, <laughs> um, I guess they kind of have the shape of Ray-Bans. So maybe people just assume? I don't know. Yeah, like for years, whenever this movie has been discussed, they always talk about Ray-Bans. And now she wasn't wearing Ray-Bans. Yeah, that's so funny. So I found that Nice. I forgot there was one other thing I wanted to mention and your mention of the Oscars brought it up because it won for Moon River. The scene of Audrey Hepburn playing and singing Moon River on her fire escape is such like a lovely, sweet, touching scene. And when they were, I think it was like when they were either viewing an early cut of the whole movie or when they were going through dailies or something, the producers wanted to cut that scene. And um, Audrey Hepburn basically said, over my dead body. And yeah. uh, it stayed in. Yeah, I saw that. Well, they were, you know, I read some criticisms about her voice, that she had sort of a, that her voice wasn't super strong. But I mean, it's not. Who cares? Exactly. Like, she barely sings. And that was actually something that I took into consideration when I was recasting my Holly, oh. right? Because both Tessa Thompson and Rose McIver, like, it was funny because I was Googling them. I'm like, can either one of these actresses sing? And they both have lovely voices. Oh. Like, perfect. That's so great. that was something that I actually looked at because it was, I read, like, a few different criticisms about Audrey Hepburn because of that. Yeah. Which I thought was weird. It is weird. First of all, she doesn't sing a ton. And the scene Not where she musical. does... Exactly. And the scene where she does sing, it's a beautiful scene. So we don't need... She's got a ukulele. Yeah. Anyone who has a ukulele is not a serious musician. Oops. Oh, Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. If uh, all the ukulele heads come at us. all the ukulele people are going to come after me now. (laughs) Well, let's take one last break before we go on to our final segment. Today, I want to tell you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, the future of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month plus bonus episodes, The Future Of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. 
Subscribe to The Future Of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. And connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atb.com. And now back to the show. And we're back. And it's time for our final segment. Hold me close, young Tony Danza. It's time for Hold Me Close, Young Tony Danza, the segment where we cast Tony Danza into one of the roles in this movie. Janet, what do you think? Well, I think you should go first. Okay. Uh, I'll be honest. I had forgotten completely about this segment. I'm very ashamed. (laughs) But uh, I'm going to go the stereotypical route. I'm going to cast him as Sally Tomato. Uh... Uh, obviously not in 1961. I'm pretty sure he was uh, a baby, <laughs> but yeah, I think he'd be fun as uh, the like, because the side that we see of Sally is just like a caring uncle type of character. So right. I-, I could see Tony in that. Well, I gave Tony a lead role. I cast him as Paul. Ooh. Yeah, he's Tony Danza. Yeah. He deserves to be a lead. And also, he's very charming, and older women would pay him for sex. <laughs> <laughs> I would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see it. Yeah, I mean, it would be totally believable that he'd be sweeping all these ladies <laughs> off their feet. <laughs> and it would be totally believable when he kind of takes the right turn of, like, when he dumps Tui, which I it took me forever to figure out what her name was the character like who Paul is initially with. So her name, I forget it now, but it's like, it's two names that both begin with the letter E. So he calls her two E the whole time. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And then the Netflix uh, subtitles call her Thule, which is definitely not it. (laughs) Okay. But anyway, yeah, now I've lost my train of thought. But that's okay. Yeah, it's completely gone. I don't know why I brought her up. (laughs) I could see her paying Tony Danza to sleep with her. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, I I like that, actually. I think he would be a good Paul Varjak. Um, Okay, so I don't think we... For next month, we will be uh, casting a surprise. I guess so, yes. Yeah. And um, as always on social media, you can find us at Repodcasting. If you have any movies that you'd like to suggest for us to recast, or if you want to talk about any of our choices, you can do that at repodcasting at gmail.com. And Janet, uh, sometimes I ask this at the end, what do you think? Did we improve this movie? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a fan of the movie the way you are. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we improved it. I certainly think in terms of the the Mickey Rooney character. I hope that we improved it somewhat. Yeah, I would think so. I I think getting him out of there (laughs) and putting almost anybody else in his place. We didn't need that character. Not at all. It was was gratuitous. It was broad. It also like, because the movie is funny overall, like there are other funny moments in this and that, but the type of humor that Mickey Rooney's bringing to it doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. Yeah, they just didn't need that character overall at yeah. all in the movie. Like, 
there's enough happening in the movie that if you didn't have a Mr. Yunioshi in the movie, so what? It wouldn't matter. Totally I don't agree. Think that it necessarily. It certainly doesn't add anything to the movie. If anything, it's distracting for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for uh, going through this, Janet. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. And uh, we'll see you guys next month and see you next month, Janet. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. Hi again. Just wanted to let you know that next month we'll be recasting The Flintstones, the 1994 live action movie starring John Goodman, Elizabeth Perkins, Rosie O'Donnell, and Rick Moranis. It's available on Netflix, so watch it and recast along with us. See you next month.